Um, we are continuing today in, um, in, in our series, Sermon on the Mountain. We, we've, we're two weeks in and 11 verses down. So we are making great headway. Um, but seriously, if, you, if you've missed the last couple of weeks, if you haven't had the opportunity to be here, I want to encourage you uh, to go back Listen online through the website, whatever, however you do your podcasts. Uh, when we when we started planning this series back in early fall, and Pastor David and I were taking a look at um, the different weeks and the different things that we were going to tackle. I mean, he was like a little kid calling shotgun, right? He's like dibs on the Beatitudes. That's right. Pastor David called dibs on the Beatitudes. Um, and I was like, all right, man, he is really excited to preach that. And obviously, I'm so excited that it took two weeks. Um, but it was so well worth the time. And so I want to encourage you, if you haven't um, heard of those or been able to interact with those, go back. Go back and listen to those and, and, and sit and, and process through that a little bit because he did such an excellent job kicking us off um, in the series that way. And, um, and, and it's well worth your time. As we continue... I also have been awfully excited to get into the Sermon on the Mount. Because I, I feel like as we, as we process through this, the Sermon on the Mount is one of those things that is paradigm altering. That is whatever I thought I knew, right? If I can really interact with this well, then all of a sudden it will shift the way I think and the way I believe and the way I behave. And it'll, it'll give me a different paradigm, a different way to see the world. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with the Bible. I hope you're getting more and more familiar with the Bible, right? That's always our goal is to be more and more biblically literate. And we know that we live in a culture that's not always biblically literate. We got 12 Bibles in our house, right? But we don't really know where they are. And if we do, it's because we grab it when we come to church on Sunday, and then we just put it back on the shelf, and it sits there until next time. Sometimes you don't even take it out of the back seat of the car. You don't have to raise your hand and admit it, but it happens. We're not always the most biblically literate. And so hopefully we're growing in our understanding of Scripture. Right? Hopefully we're studying a little bit more frequently, and we're getting into the Word. But even if we're not understanding the Bible so well, one of the things we know is we know parts of the Sermon on the Mount, right? Because they're bite-sized and they're snippets and, and they're easy to say. Uh, sometimes we don't know they come from there, right? We don't know it comes from Sermon on the Mount, but, but we know them, right? We know that we're supposed to do unto others as we would have them do unto us, right? We know that blessed are the meek. Right? We know we're not supposed to worry or be anxious. You know, we've heard the Lord's Prayer enough times. Like we, we get these little bite-sized things that we have an understanding of, but, but part of that is, is because what we've done is we've turned, culturally, we've turned the, the Sermon on the Mount into good advice. Just good advice for the way to live the best life you can. But it's not good advice. It's not what it is. It's not what Jesus intended it to be. Jesus intended it to be something that completely, radically changes the way you live. 
And if we can't get there through the Sermon on the Mount, if we can't understand that this is radically, completely going to change the way that we live, then we're going to miss out completely on the blessings that Jesus has promised us if we understand this. Right? Because he's going to say things. He's already said things through the Beatitudes, and it's going to continue. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Right? Because they will see God. Blessed are the meek, because then everything will be given to them. Right? Blessed are you, right? It's a good thing when you're poor, because then you're rich. The way to really have freedom is to forgive and love your enemies. Right? These things are, the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, they're life-giving, they're precious. But they're so paradoxical and confusing. Right? And so it starts with just this one understanding, and we're going to see this as we continue today. And, and here's what it is. The kingdom that we live in, the worldly kingdom, operates on a completely different set of rules than God's kingdom that is being established. Right? The worldly, king, the worldly kingdom operates in this set of rules, this paradigm, this box. This is the way it works. We know how it works, right? We've lived in it our entire lives. Some of us, that's longer than others, but, but we've never lived in another world than this one, I don't think. Listen, argue with me later. If you've got a completely different experience, we'll talk about it. But most of us, this is, this is what we know. But God says, listen, when you are born again in Christ, you don't belong to that kingdom anymore. You belong to this kingdom, this godly kingdom, this heavenly kingdom. You no longer operate the way you used to. Now you're operating in a completely different way. And it is paradoxical. And it can be confusing. And when Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, he's not giving you good advice. It's actually terrible advice if you're trying to live in this world. I mean, this is what I need you to understand. The, the, the Sermon on the Mount is terrible advice if you're trying to live a worldly satisfaction, right? If you're trying to live a life that makes you happy in the here and now, it's bad advice. But if you're trying to live for the kingdom of God, then it's the only way you can live. We've got to start to wrestle with this. That's why, that's why I, I think as Pastor David really broke it apart for us and, and went slowly that it was a really good thing, and that's why we're going to pick up today and continue because we have to understand how this works. And so today we're talking about this idea of salt and light. And what does that mean? And how does it play? And so, so let's just look here. This is the text, and, and we'll get to verse 16 as well. But um, you are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it's lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? No. It'll be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. Nobody would ever light a lamp and then put it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. Like, okay, these things make sense. But we have to really understand them in context. Actually, to understand this well, we're going to go backwards a little bit. Because this is easy. Hey, Christian, you're supposed to be salt and light. Like, oh, all right, cool. But I don't want you to look at this. See, again, the Sermon on the Mount, it wasn't like um, independent lessons. 
It was one discourse about how to live a radically different life because you're no longer rooted in this worldly kingdom. You are rooted in this godly eternal kingdom. And so this, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world and you best act like it. That's Matt's translation. You are and so you ought to act like it. This comes right after, right after this. Oh, I went the wrong way. This is, what he's, this is what Jesus says just before he tells you that you're salt and light and you best act like it. He says, God bless you when people mock you and persecute you. When they lie about you. When they say all sorts of evil things against you because you're my followers. God bless you when they do that. Right? When people lie about you and they persecute you and they mock you and they ridicule you and they try to bring you low and they try to get it so other people won't listen to you or trust you or have anything to do with you, when all of that happens because you're following me, you're actually blessed. Paradigm shifting again, right? Because if I'm in this kingdom, I don't want any of that. But if I'm in this kingdom... Jesus says, that's actually an okay, decent thing when that happens. He says, be happy about it. Be very glad about it. Not just be glad. Listen, be very glad. Be very glad. Why? Well, because that's what's going to happen when you are living in a different kingdom than everybody else. It's what happened to the prophets. He said, remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted the same way. Jesus will say later, um, in John 15, they persecuted me. They're going to persecute you. That's just going to happen. See, here's what I need you to get as we, as we get into this call to be salt and light, as we really start to unpack it and understand it for what it is, is that, again, it's not just good advice by saying, hey, be a nice person, right? Be salt and light, be friendly, be positive, be encouraging, it's not saying that. When Jesus says be salt and light, he's specifically saying put yourself in a position where the world will hate you because of it. I, I love that David said last week, right? There's no fine print in the Christian life. Jesus did not pull punches. He did not promise you good times. He did not promise you smooth sailing. In fact, he told you quite the opposite. In this world, you will have troubles. But take heart, because in my kingdom, I've overcome the world. But this is what he's saying. He's saying, look, look, when you choose to live in another kingdom, the whole world that's in the wrong kingdom is going to look at you, and you are going to be the one that stands out, and you are going to drive them crazy. Why? Right? Because your rightness will show them their wrongness. And evil will always hate light. And you're like, well, Matt, that's, that's, a, that's a hard statement, right? Because not everybody that's outside of the Christian faith is evil. No. Not every non-Christian is evil. But every non-Christian is stuck in an evil, broken system. And when you try to live in a different kingdom, it's going to show them in stark contrast the ways they're off. 
and they'll hate it. So listen, I want you to get this big idea going in. As we talk about salt and light, as we talk about all of this, be, be clear. The world will never love you for being a Christian. At best, they'll tolerate you. Most likely, they'll hate you. At worst, they will be openly hostile. We call that persecution. And persecution is the normative experience for the Christian. And we hate that, right? We hate that, but persecution is the normative experience for the Christian. You heard Haley telling a story from If Gathering. I hadn't heard that yet, and I certainly didn't tell her she couldn't tell all of it, because now I want to know more. <laughs> so when we go downstairs, I'm... <laughs> Does she, do you still have a microphone? No? Okay, good. Uh-oh. <laughs> but, but, but she tells the story from myth gathering about the woman who's living in persecution in a country where if they see her engaging in her faith, right, that her life will be in danger because of it. Like, that's what they tell her. And, and, and we look at that and we're like, oh, that's horrific. Yeah, that's what the grand majority of the world deals with. But we... We got no issues. We got so many Bibles, we don't even know where they are, right? I mean, if I go in my office, I don't just have Bibles. I got like 17 different versions of the Bible. I got Bibles that you people bring me. You know why you bring them to me? Because you don't want them anymore, but you feel weird throwing them away. You're like, this is cluttering up my house. I don't need an eighth Bible. I'm going to take it to the church because the pastor will know what to do with it. He throws it away as soon as you leave. <laughs> because here's the deal. If it's falling apart and you don't need it, I'm not going to give it to somebody else. I'll give him a new one. Stop doing that. <laughs> All right, that feels weird. If you just gave me a Bible, I wasn't talking about you in particular. There's probably no way for me to sell that, is there? <laughs> All right, well, we've jumped the shark. Anyway, here's the deal, right? We have so many Bibles. We have so much access. She's like, if I don't, sometimes because I'm in fear, and, 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 and not fear like, oh, I'm afraid of, uh, of people, but, but like just the reality of if they see me, it's over, right? So sometimes I, don't, I can't get away, and I, I have to go a whole week without opening my Bible, and it hurts me. Because the persecution is so heavy and we're like, yeah, well, I'll, I'll get Bible again next Sunday if I make it to church. It's wildly different than what we're used to. But Jesus says, this is the norm, right? Like, like blessed are you when they hate you for my sake, because they will hate you for my sake, because you are living in and for a kingdom that they don't understand. And you're living in and for a kingdom they don't understand. It's going to show them. It's going to show them the gap. See, they're over here thinking they're all good. In their own righteousness, that they're okay. And you're over here living a life that pushes back at that. And they'll hate you for it. Persecution is the normative experience for a Christian. And so you're thinking to yourself, well, then why in the world would anybody choose to do that? Like, we get Christianity, right? Like, thanks God for dying on the cross. Thanks for saving me. 
I'm good. I'm just going to keep that to myself, right? And therefore, um, I will be safe and secure in my eternal home, knowing that Jesus will save me when I die. But I'm not even going to bother to risk putting some things out there or being in a certain way or, or anything. Why? Because I don't want people to persecute me. I don't want them pushing back at me. I don't want all of that garbage. So why in the world would we do that? Well, because Jesus tells us to. Right? Because Jesus tells us that that's our role that we're to be salt and light. And there's a real clear reason that we're supposed to be salt and light. And it's because people are dying. People are going to hell. Hell is awful. And we should hate that. Like, I don't know how to make this any more clear for us. Like, why in the world would we bother to be salt and light when persecution is obviously what's going to happen? Well, because we have a very clear job to do. And that is to save people from hell. Hell is not metaphorical. Hell is real. Hell is not just a less awesome eternity. Hell is tragically awful. Hell is separation from the God of the universe. Hell is separation from anything even remotely good. Hell is tragic. And there are people that we love and know that are destined to be there. And yet, at some point, we're like, "Hmm, I don't really want people to feel bad about me, right? Imagine how they're going to feel for all of eternity, knowing that you had the truth that you didn't tell them. Like, this this is a real thing. Jesus isn't just spitting out words here because it sounds good, right? He's not just giving you something. So, oh, well, salt and light, yeah, we can can talk about that and sing songs about it and be whatever. No, no, he's very clearly telling you there is so much at stake. Yes, you're going to be persecuted because you're living in a different kingdom than they are, but you still need to do this because we are on mission. 1 Corinthians 5, 18 to 21, right? Actually starts with 17. Go figure how that works. And he says, Therefore, when you're in Christ, you're a new creation, right? The old life is gone. The new life has come. We know that when we're in this new life that we can't automatically just snap our fingers and make the old disappear. We have to grow up in our faith. It's the process of sanctification, right? We do this, but, but as we are new people, we have a new kingdom that we live in. And that new kingdom comes with directive, God has given us the task. Listen, Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have been given the task of reconciling people to him. That is your job, to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus says, that's why I'm here. And he says to you, you're going to do even greater works than I am. I've prepared things for you to do to seek and save that which is lost. God has given us the task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. He gave us this wonderful message. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God makes his appeal, his plead through us. We actually speak for Jesus when we say, come back to God. Because God made Christ, who never sinned, to be sin for you so that in him you could be made right with God. That's your job. That's 
what it means to be salt and light. We're going to get to that in, in just that you're like, man, I thought we were going to look at Matthew 5. We are. We'll get there. I promise. But, but this idea that, that you are called to be salt and light, you got to know what's at stake before we even figure out what, what that looks like. He's not saying be a good dude. He's not saying be kind and friendly. He's not saying don't be a jerk. I mean, listen, don't be a jerk. But that's not the point of him telling you to be salt and light. The point of him telling you to be salt and light is that you live in another kingdom and you need, you need other people to come live there with you too. Because if they don't, then they're going to pay for their own sin. But they don't have to pay for their own sin. Right? Because there is a God in heaven who made Christ to be their sin so that through Christ they could have his righteousness and be made right with God. That's your job. That's what it means to be salt and light. And guess what? The world will hate you for it. The world will hate you for it. You're like, Matt, it doesn't make sense that the world will. I, okay. You're right. It doesn't, right? Hunger and thirsting for righteousness. Being a peacemaker, loving your enemies, forgiving freely. Why the world hates that, I don't know. Except that it's different than them. But the world will. Jesus says they will. He says you're going to be persecuted. Right? That is the absolute expectation for the Christian. And it's worth it. Because it comes with the blessing of God. And part of the blessing of God is that you... Through the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit living in you, get to help save people from hell. I hate to be overly dramatic, but it's in my nature. For those of you that know me well, you're not confused about my drama. Who in heaven, who in heaven will be there because of you? Who in heaven might possibly be there because of you? I mean, either we're wasting our time or we're not. Either this is real or it isn't. And I'm imagining since you've decided to gather together and worship this God that we claim to believe in and we sing songs and we open the word and we pray and we learn, I'm assuming we believe this is true. So if this is true, then hell is real. People we love are going there. What are we doing about it? Either it's real or it's not. Who in heaven might be there because of you? Because of the way that you loved them and the way that you lived in another kingdom boldly, passionately, because you were an ambassador of Christ an agent of reconciliation who made sure that they know beyond a shadow of a doubt, not just with your words, but your actions, that there is a God in heaven who is no longer counting their sins against them because he made Christ to be that sin so that they could be the righteousness of God and they could be made right. They could experience real freedom. Who in heaven will be there because you took that call seriously? And then if I could be so um, bold as to ask this awful question. Just downright awful question. I'll warn you ahead of time, it's awful. Who might be in hell? Because we refused. Because it's either real or it's not. So, 
That's the backdrop. And the reason that, that we linger there and drill down on that is simply because we cannot misunderstand what Jesus means when he says, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. We can't misunderstand what he's really getting at. We have to understand what's at stake. So fully understanding the persecution that comes with being salt and light and fully understanding why we would embrace that even though we hate persecution. Let's look at it. So you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He says, this is who you are. Why do you embrace this? Why, why do you do this? Because it's what you are. If you truly are born again, you truly have been moved from an old decaying kingdom, a worldly kingdom. The Bible tells us pretty clearly that this is the kingdom where Satan is in control. You have been moved to this godly kingdom of freedom and eternal life. You've been moved to this kingdom which means you aren't this anymore. You are this. That's old. This is new. You are salt. You are light. You're the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. Right? So, so here's, here's just the thing I need you to understand just about those two statements before we get into the rest of it. The difference... The differentness of God ought to be reflected in the life of Christians. If it's not, then we have to ask ourselves, right, are we surrendered the way that we think we are? Pastor David made this point um, a couple weeks ago, which I thought was just such a, 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 a wonderful point for him to make, and, and, and I wrote it down, and I circled it, and I underlined it in my notes, right? You should take notes, because there's always good stuff. I mean, when David preaches, you should take notes, because there's always good stuff to write down. But this is, I've actually gone back, even in preparing this week, I went back, and I, I kind of went through some of those, because he made the point about defiant surrender, which I, I think, I, I loved hearing him say it that way, because basically what he described was this time frame in my life where I have often had to fight with myself about whether or not I was really a Christian, right? When I was in middle school, I got scared to the altar because Pastor Ed, oh, Pastor Ed, Pastor Ed, I mean, he wore out that pulpit, slamming his hand on it, right? And, and screaming. I know you're like, why does he get so loud sometimes? It's how I grew up. And, and, and he you know, it was, I've told you about Pastor Ed before, love the guy, right? But, but man, every week it was, you could die in a fiery car crash on the way home today, and then you'll be in hell. So turn or burn. That was the way he would say it. Fix it. Like, and every week he scared me to death, like to the point where I'm like, dad, are you good to drive home? <laughs> like, be careful. To the point where I just came to the front and I just said, okay, I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to go to hell. So I gave my life to Jesus because I didn't want to go to hell. And it was a real honest exchange. I understood that I was sinful and I gave it to him and I, I begged him to forgive me of my sins so that I would not go to hell. And then I went out and I lived my life. And I often would tell him, I'm sorry, 
forgive me so I won't go to hell. And, and I did that from seventh grade until after college. And I've always wondered, like, what is it? Like, what was that? Like, like, was I saved? Was I not saved? I truly believed in Jesus. I truly believed that the cross was for me. But then I just kept doing my own life. What was that? Well, as Pastor David was preaching a couple weeks ago, it, it, I understood clearly what that was. That was defiant surrender. That was just enough of Jesus because I did not want hell. And can I tell you something? It is an awful place to be because nothing is right. Because I don't have a home. I don't fit here and I don't fit here and I know it. And there's this dissonance that rages and I can't quite figure it out. And it was only when I got to the point, right, spending some time with some men that challenged me, right, that, that, that helped me to see it differently, that I was able to say, you know what? I just need to surrender. So for some of you, you're, you are a Christ follower. You love Jesus and you have surrendered, right? But, but you haven't figured out what it means to fully surrender. And so this statement isn't true for you. The differentness of God is not reflected in your life. Can I challenge you that it ought to be? If it's not, then I'm not sure you've surrendered the way that you need to surrender, I'm not, I'm not about to question your salvation. What I am is about to question the joy that you're getting out of living this Christian life because God says, hey, do these things and you will be blessed. And you know as well as I do, for, for, for all those years in my life and, and for what you're going through, you're not experiencing any blessing. You're just treading water. But we need full surrender. When we fully surrender, we are salt, we are light, and that difference will be reflected in the way that we live. And this tells us something too, by the way, side note. This is why we don't expect non-Christians to act like Christians. I have conversations with people all the time that get so frustrated at people in the world for acting like people of the world. Well, why would they act any different? They live in this kingdom over here, right? They live in this kingdom over here. Of course they act like they live in this kingdom over here. They might, to the best of their ability, be good people or whatever it is, but, but here's where they live. I can't expect them to live like they're living in a godly kingdom because they don't. They need one thing, Right? They don't need morality. They don't need rules. They don't need regulations. They don't need to behave a certain way. They don't need to do. Here's what they need. they need. They need the cross. They need me to be salt and light. See, sometimes, especially in, in our culture, I think we, we think that salt and light means we can regulate morality. We can legislate it. We can make everybody behave a certain way, and, and then um, we'll, be, we'll be the godly kingdom. No. It's not how it works. There's one thing, one thing that's going to save people, and it's the cross. Something else here. He says, you're the salt of the earth, but, but what good is salt if it's lost its flavor? You're the light of the world, and, and it can't be hidden. Here, here's the issue, right? The fact that we're salt and light tells us something about this kingdom that we live in. It's decaying. It's dark. 
right? The world needs salt. The world needs light. Of course it does, right? That's the point of salt. See, some of us think, and I've heard pastors say this before, and they're well-meaning, and I think probably I was one of them for a long time, um, and here's what they would say. Well, salt adds flavor. Have you ever had popcorn with no salt? Listen, it sucks. Don't do that. Some of you are like, I like popcorn with no salt. No, you don't. You've just trained yourself to say that. Like, Carrie bought a magnet the other day for the fridge. It's like, I don't care about your diet. Just eat your lettuce and be sad. <laughs> and that's how I feel. That's how I feel about unsalted popcorn with no butter. You're like, just eat it and be sad. Yep, you look better than I do. Congratulations. You're sad. I'm not. <laughs> Deal with it. But here's the thing, right? Salt adds flavor. And so, so, so us well-meaning pastors, and I've, I've been there, right? We're like, oh, so here's what it is. As a Christian, you should always be salting whatever conversation is happening, right? You should always add a little Christian flavor to it, right? You should always just, you should stand out. If you're not there, they should notice, so we get this idea that that's what it means to be salt, but that's not what they use salt for. Not mainly, sure, a little bit of flavoring, but mostly salt was used to preserve meat. We would catch fish, right? And fish, I don't know if you know this or not, but fish can get fishy awful fast. And so it would decay and it would rot. But if we did some things to it to dry it and we use salt in the process, it would preserve it and it would last for a while. Salt primarily was used as a preserving agent. It was meant to fight the natural decay that was happening. When Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, what he is saying is this world is on a natural course ever since sin, a natural course of decay. That's why he says, I am one day, I'm going to make this whole thing new, Right? Until then, it's on this course for decay. Listen, we can't fix it. But we can work to preserve it. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you are the salt of the earth. You are supposed to push back against the decay. And he's not talking. He's clearly talking about the spiritual decay. That Christians are supposed to be the salt that pushes back against this. He says, and the world is dark. And you're supposed to be light, right? The world is naturally dark. Ever since sin, the world is naturally dark, right? And we're talking, again, spiritual darkness. The world doesn't know about Jesus. We, Paul writes about it in Romans 1 and 2. He's, he's like, you have, you have gone so far off the reservation that the things that God created for your enjoyment, you're worshiping them now instead of the God that made them. You're in spiritual darkness. And, and Jesus says, hey, you people that now live in my kingdom, you're supposed to be the spiritual light that pushes that darkness out. Why does it push it out? So that people can see what's real. Why does that matter? Because this is either true or it's not. And if it's true, then, then darkness equals hell for people that don't know God. And we should not tolerate that. 
Jesus says, you're salt and light. You, spiritually, you are supposed to preserve this so that people can see truth. You are light. Spiritually, you are supposed to shine bright enough that people have an opportunity to interact with Jesus. Because without us, church, doing that, people are stuck in decay and they're stuck in darkness. And then he says this real hard, challenging part. You're the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? Um, By the way, no, you can't. It's not like a, hmm, that's a question. Like if a train was leaving Ohio, it... I was leaving Boston at 75 miles. When would they? No, this, is, this isn't a, a question that you're supposed to answer. It's rhetorical. It's simple. What do you do with salt that is no longer salty? You throw it away. Why? Because it serves no purpose. That's harsh. But they're the words of Jesus. Can you make it salty again? No. Of course not. It'll be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. He says, and why on earth would we have light that we intentionally hide? What value will there be in a lamp that's covered up? Zero. That does nobody any good. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house, right? That's what you do in a house. You light a lamp and you put it somewhere so everybody can see. You're like, it's really dark in here. We'll turn on the lamp and then stick it in the closet. Shut the door. Guess what? It's still dark. But Jesus says, that's not what we are. We're, we are like a city on a hill. When, when the kids were little, it, it was endearing like once and then it got annoying fast. But Aubrey would sit in the back and, and um, we'd be driving from Cedar Rapids back, coming 150, you know, Pastor Banna through that. And, and, you know, she'd always say as we were about to go, are those the Vinton City lights I see? <laughs> and she would say that because she was mocking your city. Well, our city. But then it, was, then it was your city. I wasn't really a Vintonian quite yet because it was like the city of lights was the, the name, right? And so she was kind of mocking you all. Unless you're a transplant like me, and then we're cool. But that was it, right? Like, like you could see it, right? 150 is a dark road. I have a friend that hit a cow. <laughs> it's a dark road. I'm, I'm totally serious. She hit a cow. Anyway, she's fine. Her car was not. The cow wasn't either. But focus hands. I'm having a little trouble staying focused. Here, here's the deal. I got up early. Anyway, right? That road is dark. The city is light. It clearly stands out. The closer I get to it, the more I can tell. But it shines in a distance. This is the analogy that God has given you as an individual and us as a church. You we collectively are a city on a hill that is supposed to light up the darkness. We are supposed to push back against the decay. 
That's our role. And, and, and here's the thing, right? We don't get it perfect as individuals, and we certainly don't get it perfect as a church, but we understand it's our mission and we're trying. There are times we'll do better. There are times we'll struggle and we'll always look to innovate and see how we can do these things better because people are worth it. But this is the point. So here's my, my encouragement for you as we get ready to close. Um, I said get ready. I didn't say last thing. As we get ready to close, here's my encouragement for you. Don't substitute emotion for action. You know what Christians are really good at? Christians are really good at being emotional. In a good way. We are really awesome at being emotional. We get emotional when we sing songs, right? Because the songs are specifically designed to be emotive. And that's not bad, but that's what they are. Right? Like some songs are rich in theological truth, old hymns, and we sing those and they're awesome. Some songs are, are meant to be emotional, right? That's why you sing the same chorus over and over and over again, because it's designed to elicit something. And you'll get it, right? The music starts here and it builds here and you're getting intense. And that's not bad either. Some songs are really awesome at doing both, right? That's the sweet spot, right? We're really good at being emotional, right? We're like, man, there's a story about a lady who's so persecuted that sometimes she can only read her Bible once a week and it gets her. And that makes me emotional. It makes me think, what, what should I be doing differently? And I think about it. Like, oh man, human trafficking is terrible. And whenever I hear about it, I feel emotionally awful inside. And abortion is wrong and I know it and I feel so bad. And we, we're good at getting emotional. You know what we're not awesome at? Like hell is real and I can't believe people I love are going to go there. We get emotional about it. But for some reason, we feel better. Once we get emotional about something, we feel like we've accomplished something. That's a uniquely Christian trait. That we get emotional about it and we feel like that's good. But the reality is our emotion does not, while well, it's good, it doesn't substitute for action. Jesus says you are this, so you must be this. You are salt, you must be salty. You are light, you must be lit. I don't know. <laughs> but you get the point, right? He's saying like these are the things that you must be because... Like your emotion of like, I get it and it hurts me and I'm so sad about it and oh, the angst, that's not enough. So you must act on it. But, but here's the thing too. We, we Christians have another uniquely um, interesting trait. When, when we get emotional and we act sometimes, we don't always act in the most productive ways. And action is no substitute for productivity. And when I say productivity, I mean in a spiritual sense. I mean, we'll, we'll tweet. Oh, I'm going to tweet something. I don't, I'm not on Twitter, so I don't know exactly how that works, but I know you do. I know some of you are like, oh, I'm going to tweet about that. Or, oh, I'm going to make this Facebook post. Facebook's still a thing, right? Instagram. There's like eight new ones that I don't know what they are. TikToking. It's a real thing, right? But we, we, we act, right? So, so sometimes we just settle for emotion, that's not good enough, right? And then sometimes we settle for action, but, but it's not really any 
action that does anything. It's just something to give us a release, to send something out there. But what, what, what Jesus is saying is, listen, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And because of that, right, if you're, if you're fully surrendered to God, because of that, you are going to act in certain ways. And those certain things, listen, we are not ever going to heaven because of our good deeds. But our good deeds are absolute byproduct of living as salt and light. How do I know that? Because that's exactly what Jesus says. He says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. And then he ends this passage by saying, in the same way, let your good deeds shine for all to see, not so they will praise you and think you're awesome, but so that everyone who sees will praise your heavenly father. Now listen, not everyone who sees will praise your heavenly father. Some people will persecute you for those good deeds. But when I let the light shine, right, when that's what I do, there are some people who are clearly going to see Jesus and they are going to respond to Jesus. And in that, they will see and they will praise our Heavenly Father. All right. We're going to stop there. One, because that's the end of the text. Two, because there are tacos and nachos to be eaten. And three, right, because I just want to leave you with this challenge. And here's the challenge. And it's personal to you. Right? It's going to be different for everybody. But here's the challenge. In what way are you not just knowing that you're supposed to be salt and light, but in what way are you actively demonstrating it? How are you? And think about it in terms of what it really is. How are you, through your not just emotion, right, but your productive Christian activity, how are you pushing back against the decay in the world, the spiritual decay that has blinded people? And how are you shining light where light needs to be? You're like, Matt, that sounds so ethereal. I don't even know what that means. All right, well, when was the last time you bothered to even talk to somebody about Jesus Christ? Somebody that wasn't already here. When was the last time you bothered to have a conversation with somebody about the hope that's in you? Right? When was the last time you took inventory of your life to say, you know what? I must cut these sins out of my life because there's no way anybody's taking me seriously as light when I've got a mouth like a sailor. Sailors get a bad rap. I don't know. Right? But you get my point, right? Like, like when, when, when I am getting drunk on Friday night saying, hey, why don't you come to church with me on Sunday, right? Nobody's taking my light seriously then. So, so maybe you need to talk to some people about the hope you have, Jesus. Maybe you need to make a priority so that instead of just being, oh, I'm busy all the time. No, no, no. I, I'm going to dig in to some Christian community and, 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 and get into the word of God. And I'm going to cut sin out of my life and be transformed. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it starts as simply as, you know what, neighbor, you want to come over to my house and have lunch? So together we can just talk about these things and we can, we can share truth. Remember a guy named Rick Davini. 
um, back at Bethany. Rick was a huge Bears fan. He loved the Bears. Poor guy. Um, he loved the Bears. And every Sunday that the Bears played, he would come to church with his family and they'd all be decked out in Bears stuff. And their regular goal was to go home after church and they'd sit down together and they'd watch the game. And I remember one Sunday, it was a Bears-Packers game. Might even have been when the Bears were good one year. I, I doubt it. But it was a Bears-Packers game, which if you don't know, that's a big deal, right? And so I asked him, like, hey, are you super excited to watch the game today? And he's like, actually, we're going to miss it. But they're, all, they're still all decked out in their bear stuff. I'm like, why are you going to miss it? He's like, well, we've been trying like heck to get our neighbors to sit down with us. And this is the time they told us would work. So we're just going to have our neighbors over and, and we're just going to sit and we're going to talk and we're going to get to know them a little bit because we want to we wanna share Jesus. And I was like, at the time, I was like, man, sucker. And I watched a game that I couldn't tell you anything about. I couldn't tell you anything about that game, except odds are the Bears lost. But I bet you Rick, because he's been working hard to invest in that relationship, I bet you he can tell you all about that encounter. Jesus says we are to be salt and light. Heavenly Father, God, we love you so much. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for the challenge that it gives us right? We know, we know that we have been moved from a worldly decaying dark kingdom to a kingdom that belongs to you. God, and and, and in that move that we have been reconciled to you, we've been forgiven, we've been set free, and we are now salt and light. And in that, God, we are called to push back at the spiritual darkness in the world. God, I pray that you'll help us to individually understand what does that mean to individually see opportunities for us to clearly be salt and light to people that need to know you. God, to not just be emotional and not just to to act as a way of, of venting, but God, that you'll help us to be productive in being salt and light to a world that is in darkness and decay. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for who you are. And we ask these things in your son's precious name. Amen.